We uh, continue our series on the signs of Jesus. There are miracles that are recorded in the book of John that he calls signs. Sign is something that points to something else. It points to who Jesus is, what he came to do. Jesus came to give us life. And so these signs, these miracles, are like glimpses of life to come. They're previews of the life that he means for us to have, like flowers budding in the spring. So appropriate time to preach on that right now. The purpose of a sign is to challenge us to discover who Jesus really is so we can have life through him. So this morning we're going to look at the only miracle that's included in all four of the Gospels, aside from the resurrection of Jesus, of course, but this is the only miraculous signs that all the four Gospel writers thought was important to record for us. And it's a familiar story to many, many people, believers and unbelievers alike. So let's see if we can discover what it teaches us about Jesus and his life-giving power. So I'm going to read John chapter 6. I'll begin in verse 1. I'll go through verse 15. Then I'll take a break and then start up again in verse 25 and go to verse 40. So John 6, verse, five, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to, make, to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then we're going to pick it up again in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's word. I'd like us to first observe what happened, primarily in the first 15 verses. And then I'd like us to to understand what happened as Jesus himself explains it to us. He gives us a commentary on this miracle. And then finally, I'd like us to believe what Jesus says as we will come to the Lord's table together and practice what he taught us. All right, let's observe first. And I'd like us to look at these 15 verses that describe this miracle. And I'd like us to especially be careful to to notice what John the writer wants us to notice. So what are some of the details, some of the things that he puts in here to to draw our attention to them, which are significant, of course, because he's, he's telling a story for us. So let me share some observations with you. First, this is an obvious one, but let's not overlook it. Jesus provides food for the hungry. Jesus provides food for the hungry. He sees that the people are hungry, and he feeds them. He gives them food to eat. He satisfies their hunger. It's not the only time that it happened. All over the Gospels, Jesus meets somebody in need, and he helps them. He meets somebody who's hungry, and he feeds them. John wants us to see this intersection of our need and God's provision because this is where God works. Our need now met with God's provision. This is how God works. We are hungry, but Jesus can satisfy our hunger. We are needy, but Jesus has the resources and the will and the desire to provide for our needs. Don't miss the obvious here. Jesus sees you in your need, whatever your need is. Jesus sees you. He knows your need, and he means to provide for you. He has a compassionate heart. When Jesus sees somebody struggling, when he sees somebody hurting, when he sees somebody in need, he naturally is drawn to them. And look at how he provides. Once everyone has eaten... 
And it says that they can have as much fish as they want, right? Jesus has his disciples gather up the leftovers and they fill 12 baskets with food. Jesus provides more than enough. More than enough. And we see that, by the way, throughout the scriptures, that when Jesus does something, it is frequently over the top, more than people ask for. His provision is abundant, better than expected. Just like the wedding at Cana, he makes better wine, more wine for the people. That's the first observation, that he provides food for the hungry. Secondly, Jesus' provision of food is supernatural. It is supernatural. There's no question that John is describing a miracle. Now, there are commentators out there. There are actually not many anymore, but there used to be a time when everybody would interpret Scripture and try to explain away these miracles. And I was trying to find a natural explanation. Maybe there was a cave that, that they were storing bread and fish in, and then Jesus somehow, as a, as a magician, was kind of taking it out, and nobody noticed, but he was distributing to everybody. Or maybe that everybody brought lunch with them, and because Jesus was sharing this one boy's lunch, everybody felt so guilty, then they got out, they got out their own and shared with others, and it felt like multiplication. But this is not what John is describing, right? John is not averse to miracles. He understands that this is God in the flesh who does all sorts of supernatural things. So why is this unusual for a gospel writer, for a Christian, to think that God would do something miraculous? And this is what Jesus does. John is describing a miracle. Jesus takes five barley loaves of bread. These are probably small, like dinner roll kind of size loaves of bread and two small fish just to give a little flavor to the bread. He prays over them and then he hands them out so people can take as much as they want. And 5,000 men, plus women and children, perhaps up to 20,000 people, maybe 15,000 people, they, everybody eats. And after they are done, they gather 12 baskets of leftovers. It's a miracle. God provides miraculously, supernaturally, for our needs. But notice how this miraculous uh, feeding happens. It's not that God here creates out of nothing. Jesus takes something that is there. He finds the five loaves and two fishes, and then he multiplies it. He takes something small, and then he makes it huge. He takes something insignificant, insufficient, and he magnifies it. God prefers to win battles with armies vastly outnumbered by the enemy. God likes to choose the younger son to lead the family. God loves to call fishermen and tax collectors to lead his church because God routinely hides his power in weakness. It's important to see that the mechanism of the supernatural miracle that could have been done in any number of ways involves taking something that exists and making it bigger, multiplying it, taking something there that is, that a boy brought, that the disciples found, and then using it in a surprising supernatural way because God hides his power in weakness. Third observation. Jesus recalls God's provisions in the past. 
This is not something that happens and everybody's surprised and they say this is the first time God ever did something like this. No. God has done things like this before several times. And so when Jesus does it, it's as if he is mimicking miracles. He's showing us what already happened to make us think, to make the the people there who are eating this bread and eating the fish to think of how God has provided in the past. For example, look at a story about the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4. I'll read it for you, 2 Kings 4, 42. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them, to the men, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. The parallels here, the similarities are, are intentional. God takes something that, that is, multiplies it, and feeds more people than it can possibly feed. Now, of course, there's another miracle from the past that everyone is thinking about because it's mentioned later in the conversation with Jesus. People are thinking about the manna in the wilderness. Bread seemingly comes from heaven again. And just as God fed his people by providing them with daily bread when they were wandering in the wilderness, so Jesus provides them with bread now. Now, these connections are important because they shape the people's perception of who Jesus is. Jesus does certain things that make people think he is a certain person. Only certain people do these things. This is somebody that has a mission, somebody that has authority, somebody that is sent from God to us. And that brings me to my final observation, number four. Jesus is perceived as a promised divine provider. So all these things, how he does it by multiplying, that he feeds the hungry, that he recalls these other miracles in the past, make people think this is somebody special. It's a promised divine provider. Look at verse 14 in John 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the prophet, this super prophet that is promised to Israel. Now, they're thinking about a specific prophecy given to to Moses by God in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 says, God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, prophet like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses was finishing his ministry, and God promised that somebody greater than Moses was going to come, somebody who will have a similar prophetic ministry, a similar authority, but greater than him. And people who read these passages connected them to the Messiah. Somebody is coming, somebody better than Moses, somebody greater than him, somebody with greater authority, whose words will be true, who will speak on behalf of God. And so when they see Jesus doing what Moses did, they're thinking, this is someone greater than Moses. This is somebody that we've been promised, this prophet that is now coming. The Messiah is coming. 
So then it makes sense that in verse 15, we read that they're about to make him king. If this promised provider, this this super prophet like Moses is coming, then maybe like Moses, he will liberate us from the yoke of Rome. So let's make him king. Let's take him to Jerusalem. And by the way, this is happening right around the time of the Passover. So people are already thinking, there's already excitement because they are reflecting on what God has done in the past when he took them out of Egypt. By the blood of the Lamb, he, he, he restored a nation to them. He brought them into the land. So they're thinking about this, and here comes a Moses-like figure that miraculously feeds them. They're thinking this may be the Messiah. But Jesus refuses the throne and withdraws. Jesus does not accept this offer because the sign is not about the liberation from Rome. So what is the sign about? Well, let's look at Jesus' own commentary on this miracle. Now, this is critical because Jesus himself explains what the meaning of the sign is because you can teach this passage in all sorts of ways, and we have, I'm sure. Sunday school, this becomes about sharing, right? You bring your lunch, you share with others, other people, right? That's not what the passage is about, is it? Jesus tells us what this is about, what this sign points to. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, truly, truly. Now, when Jesus says, when the truth himself says, truly, truly, I say to you, please pay attention to that. Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, what is he saying now to those who were miraculously fed by him? Now, they found him on the other side of the lake. He says, you may be satisfied in terms of your physical hunger, maybe for one day because of what I've done for you. But there is a deeper hunger in you that still needs to be satisfied. You may have enjoyed the food that I gave you, but there is another kind of food that I have for you. You follow me because I fed you, but the food I gave you cannot satisfy your deepest longings. The bread and fish that you ate, that I gave you, miraculously gave you, it will give you life for another day. But I have a different kind of food that can give you eternal life. So come to me for that kind of food. Not about sharing. This is about come to me and get this kind of life. Come to me and get this kind of food, and come to me and have your heart's deepest longings be satisfied in me. And just as the feeding of the 5,000 recalled God's prior provisions, his past miracles, like the manna in the wilderness, it also points to the ultimate provision of life that comes from God through Jesus. What Jesus is offering is eternal life. He's offering the life of God to us. Now, we've looked at 
these signs. This is the fifth sign. It'll be one more sign, and then we'll look at the resurrection of Lazarus. But there's one theme that runs through all these miraculous things. And here's the theme. We underestimate what Jesus offers to us. We routinely underestimate what Jesus offers to us. Just like here, people see the provision, the bread and the fish, and conclude that this is all it is. So let's follow him. Let's follow the one who can give us bread and fish. Now the same with the woman at the well just two chapters earlier. Jesus comes and meets the Samaritan woman, and she's there to draw water. And Jesus says, I have a different kind of water for you. This is the kind of water that that will give you eternal life. You will never thirst again. And she says, give me this water so I don't have to come to the well anymore. (laughs) She's thinking, there's some miraculous water that can satisfy my physical thirst anytime I want, and I don't have to go get it. So let me ask you again, every Sunday, I feel like in one form or another, I ask this question, and I ask myself the same question. What do you want from God? What kind of healing are you expecting from Him? What kind of miracles are you praying for? What do you want Him to do for you? Because Jesus always offers more than we dare to ask Him. We are concerned with survival, but He offers life. There's a big difference. I come to Him and I say, Jesus, do this one thing. Just do this thing so I can live another day, so I can get through this circumstance, so I can, I can fix this problem. It's half of my prayers are in that category. And He says, silly you. <laughs> Oh, little flock, (laughs) I'm going to give you the kingdom. I'm going to give you divine life, life everlasting, life abundant. I've been thinking about people in Ukraine who are, are stuck in cities that are regularly bombarded and shelled, and so you live in this fear of a rocket coming your way, and there's air raid sirens going off. And then you get a day when nothing happens every once in a while. And you think, this is pretty good. It's pretty good. Nobody's shooting at me. This is life. But it isn't. It's just a reprieve, right? Nothing's really changed. And so we as Christians live our lives like that. We just say, God, I I just want one day without any issues. And I'll be happy with that. You are settling for so little. And God wants to give you so much more. So to put it in the Ukrainian context, you know, we may be asking for a night without without any death or without any shelling. But God is going to restore the whole thing to you. He's going to give you Crimea, an unimaginable dream for a Ukrainian. He's going to give it to you, and he's going to give you the east and maybe a couple of Russian cities along the way. He always wants to give you more than you dare to ask him. Just like in the, praise the Lord, just like in the Old Testament battles, you read those stories of a city besieged, and, 
and they're wondering how we're going to make it, and there's nothing to eat. And then a miraculous rescue comes. And not only the enemy troops leave and leave you alone. No, 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 no. God's people go and plunder them. God's people recover the territory. God's people become wealthier because of that. Because this is how God works. And so in this story, the people in our story, they want to make Jesus the king of the Jews, somebody who can free them from the oppression of Rome. A dream, right? This is, this is an incredible thing to think would happen. But Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And before him, every knee will bow, not just every Roman knee, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the king of all. He comes to free us, not just from our sickness or our poverty or a problem relationship. He comes to free us from the oppression of sin and death, to deliver us from the rule of the flesh, the world, and the devil. I can't think of anything bigger than that. But I think there is more. I think he means to do even more than that. It's not just the physical hunger that Jesus wants to satisfy. Of course he wants to do that. He sees your need and he wants to help you. Of course he does. But he wants to provide for your existential, for your, your spiritual, your deep in your bones kind of hunger. That, that thirst for life that you don't know what to do with in this world. He wants to fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. Longings for a true home. Longings for, for real lasting joy. Longings for a true family. For justice. For rightness of the world. Longing for rest. Longing for, for glory. These are all in our hearts. And they're placed there by God. Because he means to satisfy them. I love the way Malcolm Muggeridge describes his conversion, this hungry soul who found the food that satisfies in Christ. This is how he talks about his conversion. And he gives us, again, these are glimpses, but, but they tell us about the kind of longings that God means to satisfy. Muggeridge says, a sense of homecoming of picking up the threads of a lost life, of responding to a bell that had long been ringing, of taking a place at a table that had long been vacant. This is conversion. This is coming to God. You realize this is my place. This is my home. This is my family. This is what I've been, been meant to do. And then you come to him and those things start falling into place, and you realize this is it. This is what my heart has been, has been longing for. All these years, through all these struggles, I thought I had these problems, but my heart is made for something much, much bigger than I dared to believe. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, 
from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's talking about glory. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about abundant life. He's talking about the food that endures to eternal life. Is that what you're seeking? Is that what you want from him? Because this is what he's offering. This is what he came to give you. And we are just too easily satisfied with small victories, loaves and fishes kind of stuff. Now, as he explains it to the people that found him on the other side and want more food from him, and they're starting to understand it to some degree, and they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. And here's how Jesus responds in verse 35. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, notice what they're asking. They're asking, give us this bread that can satisfy our deepest hunger, our deepest longings. Give it to us. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I'm not giving you something apart from me. I'm giving you me. Jesus says, I am the provision. Not only am I the the promised divine provider, I'm also the provision. I am what I am bringing to you. I am here because I am the bread. It is I who satisfies your deepest longings, is what he's saying. I am the food that can bring eternal life to you. I am the family. I am the home. I am the joy. I am the justice. I am the rightness of the world, and I am the glory you long for. This is, this is an incredible statement. Because when Jesus says, if you want this bread that satisfies, I am the bread, you have to take me, there's no distance anymore between them and him, between us and him. There's no distance. You can't get any closer to him. He is the provision. He is the food that gives you life. So if you want life, you have to have him. There's no life outside of him. He doesn't offer something to us that is apart from him. He doesn't say, I will give you life. He says, I I am that life. I am what you want. It is incredibly personal and relational. It's not, I have the bread I can share with you. It is, I am the bread. I am your life. I'm going to share something with you, and I'm hesitant to share that because when we share personal spiritual experiences, sometimes it can be misleading. You know, we can think everybody does it the same way. It's not true. God works with everybody differently. And so I'm hesitant to share with that, this experience with you, because somebody, one writer said, it's like opening a door of a warm house, right? And all the warmth just comes out. It's the kind of experience. You open it, you don't know what's going to happen. But I'll share it with you because I think God gave it to me partly to share with you. So last week, I asked you to spend 30 minutes 
and ask yourself a question, do you want to be healed, which is the question that Jesus asked the man that he later healed. And I said, that would be a good idea. Go off with your journal, go on a drive, go on a walk, and ask yourself that question. Ask, have Jesus ask that question, and answer it honestly, and see what you can find in your heart. And I promise to you that it will be deeply illuminating and, and transforming to your life. I don't know if anybody did it. I did it because I thought I'd better do what I tell you to do. <laughs> so I went for a walk, um, and so I, I was praying, and, and the question is, do you want to be healed? And I, I said, yes, I want to be healed, but I said, Jesus, I don't know what that is. I don't know what, what you mean by that, so, so I asked a question. I, I asked, Jesus, what do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want? thinking Jesus is going to tell me, right, what he means to do in my life. I'm open. I want to listen to him. And so I'm asking, what do you want? And Jesus said, you. He just said, you. And it was so transformative for me because I had found myself before that walk stuck in the ideas about Jesus, things I can say about him, things that are true, but things about him. And what he reminded me of is that he actually just wants me just as I really just want him. He's the bread. This is what he's doing here. He's coming to us, and sometimes he comes in a very personal, intimate way, and he almost whispers to you. Sometimes he shouts it at you. Sometimes somebody else will tell you that. But the point remains that he wants you, and you want him. And that's the whole thing. And through it, through that relationship, through that no-distance kind of connection with him, nothing in between, it's just you and him, and there's union between you, and through the Holy Spirit, you're becoming like him even as he became like you. When you're experiencing that, life flows to you. Life this divine life, this life you couldn't imagine existed, life that touches these deepest things in your heart and transforms you. Yes, gradually, of course. Lots of things to be healed in us still. Lots of blessings still to experience. But it's happening. It's happening to the point that we can say, Christ, who is my life? Because you can't separate life from him anymore. Now, there's one more thing I want to say about this commentary that Jesus gives us. It's implied in our passage, and it becomes much more explicit as you read the Gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, just like any other gospel, the direction of the story is towards the cross. And so they're building, they're building, and John is building until he's going to get to the later chapters and he's going to tell you what happened to Jesus on the cross. Now, I already mentioned that Jesus uses something small, five loaves, two fish, and he makes it into something big, food enough to feed as many as 20,000 people. So he hides his power in weakness. But it's even more profound than that as we read the gospel, we learn that Jesus hides life in his death. He doesn't just hide power and weakness, he hides life in death. 
Let me give you this example. When you leave here and eat lunch, wherever you're going to go, go home, make yourself something to eat, go out to eat, everything you will be eating will be dead. Enjoy. (laughs) Virtually everything, except for things that you don't want to know are alive, right? (laughs) Everything else is going to be dead. The bread that people ate that day was made out of barley that was harvested. It was ground up into flour and made into bread. The fish that they ate was caught, killed, cleaned, and preserved in salt. Just like our food, food in that day was dead. But it brought life. And so it is through the death of Christ that eternal life is given to us. And if you think I'm stretching the text here a little bit, I'm simply following the trajectory of John's gospel because later in John 12, Jesus says that. John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's the hour? It's the cross. It's the cross and the resurrection. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, truly, truly, again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It is not accidental that John makes a point to tell us that this miracle of feeding the 5,000 happened right before the Passover, when all Jewish families gathered to eat slaughtered lambs. And remember that it is by the blood of the sacrifice that this dead thing gives them life. The death of the innocent was the reason why they were spared, why they were delivered, why they received all the blessings of the land. It's the cross that leads to resurrection. It's death that leads to life. And now all we have left to do, having seen the miracle, having heard Jesus explain to us what happened, now all we have to do is respond. So how do we respond? How does Jesus want us to respond? John 6, 28 and 29. When they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe. What's the response? Believe in him. John six forty, For this is the will of my Father, this is the will of God, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Faith is looking on the Son is believing in the Son. It's coming to Him. It's knowing Him. That's faith. Faith is saying to Jesus, you are mine and I am yours. I want you and I know you want me. That's faith. Faith is not just agreeing with Him. It is not just reading it or hearing it and saying, yes, it's true. Faith is coming to him, looking at him, being captivated with his beauty, and running to him and embracing him and saying, 
This is it. You're my life. There's nothing else for me, but only through you. Martin Luther said, faith eats and believes in Christ. Referring to a later passage in John 6 where Jesus says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and people left. <laughs> Luther says, faith eats and believes in Christ. Faith cannot be a mere thought of our Lord God. My heart must take hold of and apprehend Christ. I must cleave to his flesh and blood and say, to this I cling, to this I will remain faithful. I would rather surrender life and limb. May I fare with it as God wills. So now we get to experience the sign, practice, obey it as we come to the Lord's table. Now we're going to confess our sin together and receive assurance of pardon, and then we'll come to the table. And as we come, if you have Jesus, if he has you, you are welcome at this table. There are no other conditions. There are no other restrictions. This is a table that is a glimpse of the table that he has set for you in glory. This is also a sign. Communion is also a sign meant to point to something greater that is coming. He wants you to think about that. He wants you to, to ask for that, to expect that to happen. So as you come to the Lord's table in just one minute, think about Jesus as your life.